Good morning. It's no surprise to any of us that the world is changing quite rapidly around us. The only difference between today and maybe a century ago is the pace at which the world is changing. Because of avenues like Twitter and Vero, anyone can instantly communicate with somebody as close as the next house over or as far away as the next continent over. We've grown so accustomed to the rapid pace that the world is changing, it's no longer hardly recognizable. The first phone call made in 1876 forever changed the time it took for a message to travel long distances, much like Morse code did before that, and the Pony Express did before that. The church is also changing at a pretty rapid pace. It seems like only a generation ago that the local church was the hub of everything social in every small to medium-sized town. Just one example of this, for many of us, when we come to church today, it's often the only time we see many of these people. So the case is no longer that the church is the social hub of every small, medium-sized town. Some of you drive past 20 dead churches to get to one that's alive. That's just one example of how things are changing. What this means is that there will be a lot more time given to uh, playing catch-up with each other before and after worship. And that's a neutral change. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just a significant change from, from times past. One other change that's not so much a change per se as it is a reversal is we're seeing people leave the church who once thought that being part of a local church was the best way to gain what you might call social capital. Since everyone goes to church, the common sense went, I'd better go too so I don't stand out like a sore thumb. And what's amazing is only in the last century has it even become possible for someone to say they were unreligious in America. People didn't have a category for anyone who claimed to be an atheist, but we are still and always will be spiritual people. Even today, this organization called the Pew Research Center, it's just a a group of people that study religion in America, has found that while 9% of people today in America say that they are atheists and they don't believe in any kind of supernatural omnipotent divine being, only 3% are willing to say so in public. And then I read this and my brain began to hurt. 8% of people who call themselves atheists also said they believe in some kind of God. That's a slow burn. I don't know how that one makes sense to some people, but I guess it does. I say these things just to show that while the religious landscape might be shifting, People are still deeply spiritual beings. We're finding out that people can claim to be atheists and still be deeply spiritual beings. Because we always have been, it's the way we're wired. When the church was still just a small plant, it was rooted in a society that prided themselves on being religious and spiritual, but not Christian. The Roman world, we all know this, had many gods. You prayed to different gods for different needs. You prayed, you sacrificed. Romans were actually deeply spiritual people. 
and we find ourselves in a similar culture as the early church. People are interested in spiritual things. Even those who deny any kind of knowable, doctrinal kind of faith with parameters and boundaries. But while people are interested in spiritual things, they would rather not engage in any kind of spirituality that really requires much of them or restricts them in some ways. Spirituality, the common sense goes, is supposed to soothe you. It's supposed to teach you good morals. It's supposed to teach you how to be good to others. It's supposed to just fill in the blank. So while both the world and the church are changing more quickly than in any time in the past, some things never change. We can try to shift and move around what spirituality really means, but we're still deeply spiritual people. One of the most difficult things to convey both in Jesus' day and in our day is that following Christ requires an incredible level of self-denial. See, modern-day common-sense spirituality is supposed to make you feel good. It's supposed to teach you how to be a good person. It's supposed to be about us, about you and about me. Biblical spirituality is about self-denial in order to follow Christ. Even his own disciples didn't get it. So if we never master it, there should be no guilt about that. But incredible self-denial is the only path for a believer. So two things. Jesus talked about his upcoming death, how it would happen, when it would happen. And then he described the kind of self-denial it takes to be a follower of Christ. The Apostle Peter, who you heard about today, is one of the most fascinating characters in all of Scripture, in all the New Testament especially. He is Jesus' number one disciple. He is his assistant and his second-in-command, per se. And yet, at times, he seems like the most incapable buffoon. How many times did Peter reject Christ? Three times. And, but he promised he wouldn't do it. And then he tries to tell Jesus what Jesus just said in the passage from Mark you heard read today. Right before this passage, where Jesus tells his disciples that he will suffer and he will die, Peter actually confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. He will save all of Israel and bring God's kingdom to earth, and Peter believes it. All of this is right, and Jesus is happy to see that Peter has been given this confession from God. Peter didn't just connect the dots. He was given his confession from God. But then in all of one verse, this gets entirely undone. In one verse, Jesus teaches them that he will suffer and die, but then he will be resurrected. But Peter disagrees. Then Peter took Jesus aside and began to explain to Jesus that the Messiah can't possibly suffer and die a humiliating death. It's always interesting to see what happens when someone tries to explain to Jesus what Jesus just said. He replies to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And that's pretty extreme. Jesus does not often mince words. Now, this doesn't obviously mean that Peter was just Satan in disguise, but he is speaking the kind of deceptive things that Satan would rather you believe. You see, if Satan can undermine your belief that Jesus would suffer and die, then be resurrected, and then come again, he has completely undermined the entire crux of your faith. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, without suffering, 
the Apostle Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If all we can live, live in this life is a nice, pretty spirituality, then we're pitiful. That's all we have. What hope does the death and resurrection of Jesus offer the believer? Well, this, if the resurrection is true, then the promise that God has plans for us after this life, that all those are also true. The Christian lives in this world with hope for the next. So everything that Jesus taught about the coming kingdom of God, of how the first, the last shall be first, of how righteousness and evil will have nothing to do with each other, of how God will inaugurate a kingdom where the gates never need to be closed because all are safe. All these things are true about the kingdom of God because his resurrection confirmed that he truly was the Son of God and that he has the authority to save them. We have to ask ourselves, why is the world so embittered against a system of faith that says its leader will return one day? Well, Scripture is clear in several places in Christ's own words, the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, that when Christ returns, it is not the days of wine and roses. When Christ returns, it is to bring justice to a world that has turned its back on his divine law the way he ordered the world. And that's not easy for anyone to digest, even believers. But we understand that Scripture notes several of God's characteristics. It often does talk about His love, His mercy, His grace, all of which we have received plenty of. But it also speaks about His justice. And we tense up whenever we read about His justice. Why? Because we know what it means. The things that we've done will one day be dealt with. How could God withhold judgment on an evil world and still be called good? How could we say God is a God of mercy and love if he never chooses to deal with the problem of evil? The death and resurrection of Jesus is the assurance that those who are called by God will also be resurrected when Christ returns with his kingdom. And this isn't just a New Testament idea. Um, it's found in the Old Testament as well. Just one example, Isaiah 26:19 says, Your dead shall live, your bodies shall rise. You who dwell in dust, awake and sing for joy. God's people have always looked forward to the day when God makes the whole world right by bringing his kingdom to earth. The resurrection of Christ, the, the resurrection that Peter just couldn't believe in, which points forward to the resurrection of all men, is the promise of justice finally and fully being brought on this world. So when Peter is getting on Jesus about how a real Messiah doesn't suffer, how a real Messiah just takes charge and gets on with business, how a real Messiah is just love and flowers, Jesus says, no, that's not how all of this works out. The real Messiah will suffer to the point of death, but the story goes on much further because there's hope beyond the grave. Jesus goes on to make four statements now about what it means to follow him in light of the coming kingdom of God, in light of the resurrection. In these four statements, he plainly lays out the sacrifice of following him. But in that sacrifice, we gain more than we could ever lose. First, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. 
God's economy is not ours. Only in his kingdom can we lose our life to find it, to be given it. How does that work? Jesus elsewhere refers to himself as living water, as true bread. And these are simply allusions to the fact that he's offering real life. Knowing Jesus is knowing eternal life. It's the gift that he gives. But we do have to lose our life to take up the life that he offers. We deny ourselves what we want, what we want to do. Only the world thinks that to fully know ourselves, we have to go deep inside of us. The, world, uh, the word enthusiastic comes from an old world on theos, which means the God inside. So when we're enthusiastic, we look inside ourselves and we uh, think we gain energy and momentum that way. Only the world thinks you find ourselves by looking inside of yourself. This common sense of the world only leads to death. The only way to find yourself is to find and know God. It's also a guarantee that knowing Jesus will result in the loss of your own life. The things that you cling to so dearly, the idols we've all made, the habits that I keep, all of these will eventually fade away. But the promise is this, these things that offered you life can never supply it. The only one who can supply the life you've lost is the one who gave up his own life only to regain it in the resurrection. Second, he asked two questions. First, what, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And thirdly, for what can a man give in return for his soul? There's a lot that this world has to offer, don't get me wrong. There are things that I love to do, places that I still want to go, but I don't want to worship them. I don't want to give them up either. I just want to experience God's good grace. God created this world, and to escape the good things that he's blessed is simply to avoid his goodness. But the hitch is this. You can go everywhere. You can try everything. You can earn every dollar. But none of them will ever equal what your soul is worth. You'll never buy back from God your own soul. The beauty of this is that's how much your soul is worth to him. Nothing you can ever offer is good enough to take you out of his love and his care. But there's always a flip side. The flip side is you can't repay the damage you've done to your own life either. You cannot buy back your own independence, but you also can't buy your own salvation. No amount of work can do away with my sin. I can accumulate everything and every experience this world has to offer, but it will not do away with the problem of my own sin. Lastly, he says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We've become so accustomed to 90% of the people we know at least acknowledging Christian morality that it seems strange to talk about being ashamed of Jesus. Everyone loves Jesus, right? He's a good guy. But listen to what Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospel of John. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. 
These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Thinking that Jesus is just all right is not obeying him. He's very clear in these passages that obeying him comes with a pretty steep price. The ones who are ashamed of him and his words are those who think like Peter did. It's the ones who think that no judgment is coming. It's the ones who think that surely glory doesn't come through suffering. At the end of the day, if we learn anything from Jesus, it's no cross, no glory. The ones who would rather follow the downstream than follow Jesus when it gets hard, that's what he means by those who are ashamed of him and his words. Now, God is a God of justice and of grace and of mercy. And they have to be held in their proper tension. And God did deal with the problem of evil. When Christ went to the cross, he carried upon his shoulders the judgment that God should have given to each of us. Instead of you and I being held accountable for our sins, our rebellion, God chose to place that burden on his son instead. Those who confess Christ as Lord have had their judgment pronounced. That's the beauty of the gospel. We will not be judged because we have been judged. We are positionally holy because Christ covers over our sins. And now the goal of the Christian life is to be what you might say is manifestly holy, actually holy. I work toward, I press on for my own salvation. So those who have confessed Christ as Lord have had their judgment pronounced, and they have no more fear of condemnation. Jesus Christ was innocent of all sin, and by dying in our place, we are pardoned for ours. The Christian is not innocent. The Christian is simply pardoned. And now we have the privilege of following in his footsteps. It is no burden to follow Jesus. It is no burden to deny yourself. He says, my yoke is easy. It is no burden to put on Christ's yoke. It should be a joy to walk behind a Savior who took up his own cross for himself. And the cross that we carry is hardly a burden compared to what he did. On that cross, God dealt with the problem of evil. Evil has already been defeated, though it still limps around for a short time. We also may suffer now, but we wait with patience. And we take up our own cross, we deny ourselves, we only identify ourselves as children of God. And only in that way do we deny ourselves and fully embrace a biblical kind of spirituality that honors God and brings out the best in all of us. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we know that you are both justice and you are both mercy and grace. Help us to believe both of those things. We know that it is so tempting to build a spirituality around ourselves and what we want, how we think we should feel. But we know that whatever we have to offer can only lead to death. The kind of spirituality that you desire for us is found in identifying with your Son. And just like how he picked up his own cross and went to suffer and die, we also pick up our cross. But our cross is joy because we serve a risen Savior who did not die and stay dead, but he was resurrected. And that foreshadows our own resurrection 
when the coming kingdom finally arrives and true justice is given out. We thank you that our judgment is pronounced and we have no fear of condemnation for those who believe in your Son. We give you thanks for how you provide for us. In your holy name we pray. Amen.